Children can be dismissed to their children's church hour at this time. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Psalms chapter 33. We are uh, spending our summer in the Psalms. Oh, I know we wish we could be in the Palms. But we'll suffice ourselves to be in the Psalms and enjoy the refreshment that they offer to us. And I think you'll see that even in today's passage, Psalms 33. I want to read this passage to you and hope that you understand it in light of where we're going today with what is right with America. Psalms 33, beginning in verse 1, it says, Rejoice! Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. There's something about the righteous. It's only the righteous person that can rejoice in the Lord. It's hard to rejoice in something that you're fighting against, isn't it? Rejoice in the Lord, you his righteous. For praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the heart. Make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. Why? Verse 4. For the word of the Lord is right, and his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea for, together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the people of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Now, there's a parallel passage you might have heard of. It begins the same way. Blessed is the... Hmm. Let's go back to Psalms 1. I think we saw that last week. It began with that very same three words. Blessed is the... You remember it? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night, and he will be like a tree planted by rivers of water. Well, I looked at that, and I looked at Psalms chapter 33, verse 12, and I said, Blessed is the, the nation whose God is the Lord. Is there a parallel? Is there a correlation between these two? The acts of a man that bring him blessing and the acts of a nation that bring blessing? I think there is. As I read through, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. How can you be blessed? Well, I am blessed as I rejoice in the Lord because of my righteousness. I, I praise the Lord. I understand that the word of the Lord is right. I understand that all the works of the Lord were done in truth. I understand that he loves righteousness and he loves justice and that the earth is full of his goodness. So I just take the time to find it and see it. Pay attention to it and live in it. If I understand that the word of the Lord is what made everything around and about me, if I understand that the ideas and the concepts of man will go away, but the word of the Lord abides forever, that the justice and the counsel of the Lord will supersede any creation of man, his plans will 
survive to all generations. I, the nation, will be blessed that understands that. Let, let me take a little bit of liberty with Psalms 1 for just a moment. Blessed is the man, blessed is the nation who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. If our nation is, is bent on listening to the counsel of men, the ungodly men who stand in opposition to God, we will not be blessed. Blessed is the nation who does not sit in the seat of the scornful. We looked at the scorners last week. Those are the people who mock and laugh at the things of God. If all we do is sit in front of our televisions and watch those mock those who love God, the Christians, the leaders, the principled, and they continue to practice things that stand in opposition to the things of God, will not be a blessed nation. Nor stands in the path of sinners. Sinners here is those that deliberately act in violation of God's law. It's not just talking about sinners who are born in sin do sin because that's what comes natural. That's our nature. But he's talking about those who practice sin in direct disobedience to the very word of God. That's what he's talking about here. Blessed is the nation that is like a tree that is planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season and does not wither when the tough times come and whatever he does will prosper. Blessed is the man. Blessed, therefore, is the nation of men who do these things. Let's suppose that sometime this week you turned on the TV and the newscaster came on with an announcement. And the newscaster said something like this. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court has just issued this statement. Divine providence, that's God, has given to our people the choice of their rulers and it is the duty of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. Can you just imagine that on television and the news this week? Maybe you turn on the news a day or so later and the newscaster says inquiries by our reporters reveal that almost every state legislature has now passed a law requiring all elected officials to take the following oath. I do profess faith in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, his only Son. And I do acknowledge the Holy Scripture, the Old and New Testament, to be given by divine revelation, inspiration. Wouldn't that be profound to see that on your newscast, Channel 5 News? There it is. Maybe you'd flip the channel over and you hear the newscaster say, legislation was passed today in Congress to affirm that the Congress of the United States approves of and recommends the Holy Bible for use in the schools. And God's people said, amen. What do you think the response would be would there be a national outcry? I think the reaction would be more than we could imagine. But the amazing thing is, what I just read to you, every one of these statements was in fact historically accurate and factual right here in the United States of America. It was John Jay, the very first Chief Justice, often called the father of the Supreme Court, one of the primary writers of the Constitution who wrote that it is the duty of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. 
he had good logic behind that. It was the state of Delaware, along with most others at the time, which required office holders to take an oath affirming their Christian faith before they could take office. And again, they had logical reasons for that requirement. And not only did Congress in 1782 approve the use of the Bible in our schools, they even paid for them with tax dollars. And in 1844, when someone sued to remove them, the Supreme Court ruled, why should not the Bible, and especially the New Testament, be read and taught as a divine revelation in the schools? Where can the purest principles of morality be learned so clearly or so perfectly as from the New Testament? Just think about this. If these people who were so instrumental in establishing our nation were here today to do and say the things that they did. Today they would be considered right-wing radicals and a threat to our nation. And yet that was the founding of our nation. We've got a long way, haven't we? From the roots of America. So one of my goals this morning is to do a little bit of historical education. In fact, it's probably more of a history lesson than a Bible lesson today, but it's a history as recorded as relates to our spiritual heritage. I, I would most often take the Bible and expound on it, delve into it, and see how it is practical to us, but I've come to the conclusion that there's so much about our early Christian heritage and history that most Americans will never hear if they don't hear it at church. Our school systems, our universities have become so secularized and so distanced from religion that huge chunks of information about the spiritual roots of our nation are either neglected or undermined or just twisted. So unless you hear about it from Christians, you're not going to hear it. So I want to share with you a few things that I think that are worth knowing about the history of our nation. And while it's very easy for us to point a finger and say, this is a problem, we've got to fix it. I'm so discouraged with this. Did you see what that congressman did? Did you hear what our president said? And it's so easy to point a finger and say, what's wrong with America? Today I want to show you what's right with America and why America has preserved, been preserved as it has. And by God's grace, can go back to where its foundings were. And I'll share with you why in just a few moments. What's right with America? Well, I think the first thing that's right with America is that our earliest settlers were people who came here primarily looking for religious freedom. As you look around the world, you will recognize that most nations came into existence by conquest from selfish and ambitious motives. But that is not the case with America. The primary atmosphere was about God, not about gold. That was the atmosphere in which America was born. Those were, I think, very hardy souls who first came across on the Mayflower in 1620. They fled from tyranny. They fled from oppression. And in the Mayflower Compact, these people signed in their dark and dank cabins of their ship. They proclaimed that they had come to this new world for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. You'll notice they hadn't learned to spell quite right yet. <laughs> That's how, that's why they came. 
That was stated in the Mayflower Compact, their purpose statement, if you will. In the early colonies, the very first public building to be erected was not a bank, was not a courthouse, was not a jail. It was a church, and it became the hub of activity. When things were very difficult and things were uh, sorrowful and they had lost many people to death in those first winters, they came to the church and they appealed to God for his help. And then when the harvest began to come in and they had a bountiful harvest and they had more than what was necessary even, they gathered at the church and they gave thanks to God for all that he had provided for them. In 1643... More and more people arrived on our shores, and they joined together to form the New England Confederation. They wrote a constitution, the first constitution written in the New World, and it began with these words. Whereas we all came into these parts with one and the same end and aim, namely, to advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and to enjoy the liberties of the gospel in purity and peace. Why did they come to America? They told us why they came to America. These are the spiritual forefathers that came to our shores so that they could worship, so that they could practice their faith without fear of persecution. I think that's the first thing that's right with America. It's original foundings. It's original settlers, primarily coming for the purpose of religious freedom. The second thing that I think that is right with America is that our founders had a strong desire. I'm sorry about that. That's the New England Confederation. Our fathers, founding fathers, had a strong desire to be pleasing to God and to do his will. This is important to understand. This was back in the 1620s. 150 years came before 1776. How long is 150 years? That's longer than my life. Longer than most of you. You'll catch on to that in a little while. (laughs) That's a couple king's lives back in England. 1620 to 1776, a lot happened in our nation. And not all of it we are very proud of. 150 years. You see, as time passed, the original settlers died off. Many of their descendants didn't propagate and carry on the same concern that their forefathers had come here for. They changed their purpose. They decided wealth was important, comfortable living was a priority, rather than be faithful to the Word of God. And as wave after wave of immigrants came to this new world, they didn't all come for the same purpose either. They had different motives than the earliest settlers. Maybe I'll remind you that England began a program of emptying its prisons and they sent them to the New World as indentured servants. How would you like to escape prison and just go be a servant in the New World? Hey, rather than stay here, I will go there. That's an interesting clientele of people. At the same time, the King of England was granting large tracts of land in the New World to special friends. And, of course, slavery was then introduced in order to work the plantations in those colonies, a part of American history that we're not particularly proud of. 
the spiritual atmosphere of the nation had deteriorated very rapidly. Churches were dying left and right. Many of them that had once sought religious freedom were becoming very intolerant of others. And it was during this time that some went off into some very wild, strange spiritual directions. Maybe you remember 1692. A slave girl was brought to by her masters to live in Salem, Massachusetts. And she began to tell the young girls very wild and vivid tales of the powers of voodoo. And it wasn't long until fear filled the community and we began the Salem witch trials. That was pre-1700. The end result of all this is that by 1730, there was only about 10% of the population in the colonies that attended church. Let me tell you something. That makes a very dark nation. 10% attended church. Do you know how many people attend church in the United States today? Give me, a, give, give me what you think. Forty-three. 43%. We are not as dark today as it was in America in 1692. Spiritually, we are more alive today than we were in 1692. Understand there was a gap between the first comings in the 1620s and 1776, a large gap. Not everybody was there for the glory of God and the advancement of Christian faith in the 1730s. That had pretty much disappeared from this land. By the way, much of what you hear derogatory about our nation and its founding took place during those dark years. Keep that in context. Those who oppose Christianity love to point out the faults of our nation at that time. But then something very interesting happened. Beginning in 1734, a handful of preachers, you might remember some of their names, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Gilbert Tennant, John Wesley, and there were others, and they began to preach. And the power of God came upon them, and they preached in the streets, they preached in the fields, and they cerned these turned into great crusades and revival began to sweep this nation and it swept through the 13 colonies. So many people came to Christ that the era became known as the Great Awakening. Why was it a Great Awakening? Because there was a great spiritual darkness that had taken place for a hundred years and we needed to be awakened back to the truth of God's word and his power. Tens of thousands dedicated their lives to Christ were baptized. So many came that Whitfield, as he traveled the colonies, had to hold open air meetings because there was no church large enough to accommodate him. Benjamin Franklin wrote, It was wonderful to see the change soon made in the manners of our inhabitants. From being thoughtless or indifferent about religion, it seemed as if all the world were growing religious so that each one could not walk through the town in an evening without hearing psalms sung in different families of every street. Not in the churches, in the families. In fact, Franklin was so impressed with Jonathan Edwards preaching that he built an auditorium to accommodate the crowds of more than 30,000 that came to hear Edwards preach. Philadelphia, by the way, only had 25,000 people. Does that give you a little different perspective of Benjamin Franklin? He built Key Arena. 
Fiorina only holds, I think, about 22,000, and Benjamin Franklin built a 30,000-foot, a 30,000-seat auditorium for the preaching of the Word of God. People were coming from everywhere to hear these preachers preach. And it wasn't just in Philadelphia. It was all throughout the 13 colonies. Openly devout Christians were no longer 10% of the population. They had now grown to 50% of the population. Why am I telling you that? Because the Great Awakening was the precursor to the American Revolution. America first began with pilgrims coming over on the Mayflower with a desire to glorify God. That went away for a hundred years. And God in his providence awakened a nation and awakened the spiritual sensibilities and brought people to repentance and brought people to himself in such a way that these men came through the great awakening. Our founding fathers, those that signed the Declaration of Independence, those that wrote our Constitution, the Bill of Rights, those are the men that put their lives on the line and they fought and died so that we could be free. They all grew up and came into leadership under this great awakening that engulfed our land. The generation that experienced the great awakening became the leaders of the American Revolution. Listen to this prayer recorded in the personal diary of George Washington in his own handwriting. Let my heart, gracious God, be so affected with your glory and majesty that I may discharge those weighty duties which you require of me. Again, I have called on thee for pardon and forgiveness of sins, for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ offered on the cross for me. Thou gavest thy son to die for me and hast given me assurance of my salvation. I don't care what you've heard about in, of George Washington from modern debunkers of history. He was a devout Christian man. And he wasn't alone in his faith. Over a 10-year period, political science professors at the University of Houston collected and categorized over 15,000 writings by the Founding Fathers. And their goal was to determine the primary source of the ideas behind the Constitution. And they did that by identifying the sources that were most often quoted. You know, I'm sure, what the primary source was. It's the Word of God. 94% of the quotes of the founders of our nation had their basis in the Scriptures. The point of all that is that the cultural environment on the eve of the American Revolution was undeniably spiritual. The focus was dramatically affected. It affected the men and women who gave birth to the nation in 1776. Here's something else you need to know. Oh, there's George Washington's prayer. You don't have time to read it. America was founded by men and women who acknowledged God's supreme rule over men and nations. These were not perfect people. You can find plenty of errors, but if you dig deep enough into my life, you might find something too. <laughs> and yours. We're not perfect people. They were not all devout Christians. I'm not making that claim. I don't think it can be made. But they did all acknowledge that God was the supreme rule over man and over nations. 
Sometime it would do us all well to read again the Declaration of Independence. Most of you are familiar with the prologue that says we hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. And so they're simply saying, we want to form a government whose job it is to protect what the creator has already given us. That's the job of government according to the Constitution. And after listing a series of charges against uh, England, the actions of the king of England, they make two more references to God. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, listen to this, appealing to the supreme judge of the world. They're saying that God is the supreme judge of the world. And then they end the declaration with these words. For the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, that's God, we mutually pledge to each other our, niche, our, our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. I'm sure that at one time or another you've seen the pictures of the First Continental Congress. And perhaps you've learned how they were discussing and debating the Declaration of Independence. And finally one of them suggested that they all get on their knees and ask God what should be done. And these framers of the Declaration of Independence all went to their knees as one man and they began to pray and seek the wisdom and the guidance of God. John Adams, in a letter that he wrote to his wife Abigail about that first meeting of the Continental Congress, said, The most amazing thing occurred. Even the stern old Quakers had tears gushing down their cheeks. <laughs> Wouldn't it be wonderful? Wouldn't it be powerful if our president, our Congress, our Supreme Court would get on their knees in humility before a holy God? as their forefathers did, and say, God, what do you want for this nation? At the signing of the Declaration of Independence, Samuel Adams, often called the father of the revolution, declared, we have this day restored the sovereign to whom all men ought to be obedient. He reigns in heaven, and from the rising to the setting of the sun, let his kingdom come. I look back at the history and I say, what did he mean? He has restored the sovereign. Because this nation had gone away from the sovereign. They began with the desire to glorify God and have freedom of religion, to worship God, the holy God, as they saw fit, not any God. There, there was no goal to, to be pluralistic in this nation. Not in the beginning. But then we took a sabbatical from God for a hundred years. And God in his providence brought the great awakening. And Samuel Adams has we day, this day restored the sovereign to the priority in this nation. I think that's what's right with America. We are founded by men and women who acknowledged God and his supreme rule over this nation. Uh, there's a lot of other things that we could say about the founding of our nation. I'm not going to take the time to do it because the barbecue is probably getting close to ready out there. But let me give you some things to think about. America was providentially protected and directed 
I believe, from the beginning. God had a plan and God has a purpose. The British Empire at that time possessed the most powerful fighting force on the face of the earth. We had a little ragtag assembly of volunteers and farmers and tradesmen that composed that continental army. They were outmanned, they were outgunned, they were outfinanced. There was no logical reason for them to have succeeded. Only a miracle could have brought about success. And there are so many circumstances as you read through the history of our nation with no logical explanation except God's mighty hand of providence was over them, his miraculous hand. America's government, it's patterned after and it's based on biblical principles. Where did they get the idea for three branches of governments? I'll let you suppose. American law guarantees our religious freedom to practice and proclaim our faith, again, based on the principles of the Word of God. Regardless of the Supreme Court may say today, this is foundational. By the way, do you know what the tallest structure in Washington, D.C. is? It's the Washington Monument. How tall is it? <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> Nothing in Washington can be built taller than the Washington Monument. That's the law there. And at the very top of the monument, at the pinnacle, there's an inscription. And I would imagine that there are probably legislatures, maybe presidents, maybe even Supreme Court justices who don't know what is inscribed at the very top of the Washington Monument, but on the east side of the aluminum cap in Latin is the words, let God be praised. That's a good place for us to be. To acknowledge where we have been, to acknowledge our faults, acknowledge what God has done to redeem us, the opportunities that he's granted us, and say, God, we acknowledge you. We praise you. Because righteousness exalts a nation. Blessed, happy, contented, pleased, a blessing to others. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Oh, that we would lift up our eyes. Oh, that we would praise God. Acknowledge his greatness. Acknowledge what we have become because of his blessing. Praise be to him. Father, we thank you for how you have worked in the history of our land. Thank you, Father, for the sacrifices that have been made by your providence and your wisdom in making us who we are. Lord, may we not neglect to hear and to know and to value the history of who we are. Acknowledging the sins along the way, seeking forgiveness, repenting from them, turning from them, and acknowledging the Lord Jesus who gives freedom from sin. Lord, we want to praise you as a people. We want to come back even as the great awakening and see revival spread across our land, to see people turn in faith and humility to a holy God, to see a people as a nation rise up and say, praise be to God. For you have done great and marvelous things. Lord, I pray that if there are those in our fellowship this morning that don't know you as their personal Lord and Savior, that they would come to realize the sin that has enslaved them and the freedom that they can have in the person of the Lord Jesus. 
by acknowledging their sin to you and receiving your free gift of eternal life. I pray that they would come to understand it and to know it even today. And we'll give you the thanks and give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand as we conclude singing a song of praise. There's some old-time words in this hymn. I trust you'll understand what they mean. The bottom line is, may Jesus Christ be praised.